immersive audio podcast. In conversations with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Hello and welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast, episode 54. Hosted by me, Oliver Cadell, and Monica Bowles. For those of you who haven't had a chance to listen to our last episode, Monica was our guest. But today, Monica is joining us as a co-host. Monica, welcome back again. Hello. (laughs) Our guest today, Tom Slater. Tom is an artist and producer who specializes in spatial sound for art and music in physical spaces. Tom co-founded Call and Response Studios in 2011, which is now based at Somerset House in London that houses 25.2 surround sound creative production space. Monica, how you been? I've been doing good. Just uh, got done moving to New Mexico, which was, you know, moving. You've been mo- moving for a while, but you, you're you moving into a large space and you've got some rather intriguing and ambitious plans. What are you planning to do? Well, I have a 1,200 square foot studio space that I now need to set up. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to do that. Actually, I was looking at some images of Tom's studio and found them very inspiring. That's handy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, so just working on getting uh, that space set up and hopefully... Uh, eventually be able to host some artists out there to come and do some immersive uh, exploration. Any news on in the world of immersive audio that you've picked up? Yeah, so I kind of I wanted to talk a little bit about this Bloomberg article that came out just a few weeks ago announcing that Dolby, Sony, and Fraunhofer are creating a patent pool Um, That is going to include more than 90% of the patents needed to implement the new MPEG H3D audio standard, which was developed to create a three-dimensional sound experience on mobile devices, televisions, and automobiles. Um, I think this is very exciting and you know, interesting as we kind of move forward in this world of standard audio or spatial audio, especially because um, there just have not been standards in this space for a very long time, which makes it really complicated as um, artists and engineers when you're trying to figure out how things are going to be distributed, um, especially working in this space. That's very interesting. I did see an intriguing title of the article, but I've I've not actually had a chance to read it. Um, It does sound like our prayers have been answered at last. And I personally certainly didn't expect it to happen so soon. Going into a little bit into the detail about this, what does it mean in practical terms? What is the kind of the roadmap for for this initiative? Mostly, I think, you know, it just means that there won't be as much uh, litigation around patents and it will allow for easier, hopefully, easier development of um, this kind of next generation of audio equipment that will be able to support 3D audio, uh, 3D audio playback. Um, so hopefully, you know, this will be something that will will open this space up and just allow for innovation and creation uh, without that fear of litigation. What they're going to do? They're going to also implement it in kind of on hardware and software level, uh, in a sense that maybe the 
conversion and transitions from format to format will be more seamless. And say if you if maybe a, a, if a content creator created something for one particular format for a specific platform, and if they wanted to expand uh, on number of options they can deploy the content to, they don't have to redo the whole production natively uh, with completely different set of offering tools, so to speak. They can maybe just convert that with a high degree of translation factor, so to speak, and um, not end up sounding completely different and not not how intended. Yeah, I think, you you know, MPEG-H is uh, something I've been following a little bit for a while, and I think we're going to be talking about on this podcast. Um, and it's, you know, an exciting new development in that sense of just offering those kinds of um, tools, you know, tools to be able to distribute spatial audio content on a wide range of platforms and creating that, you know, metadata format so that things, you know, your content can move around and be played in these different environments. You know, when you get these bigger companies involved in this kind of standardization process, I mean, they are the companies that push those standards. And having those standards uh, in place, I do think, helps the rest of the community because they're, they're, you know, they're working on not just the, you know, development of the tool sets that people use to be able to, um, to do, to create the content, but, you know, they're also working on the building of the hardware that's going to, you know, play that content back, the, um, you know, distribute. Uh, distribution kind of methods that, you know, are, so that all of these different pieces of hardware can then interface with the, um, you know, tech, the content formats that you're presenting. So um, it, for a while, you know, these bigger companies just haven't been interested in doing this work. And so for them now to be interested, I think, is going to make it easier for us working in spatial audio to just have an idea of okay, you know, what is the um, distribution method? What, how are we distributing this content? And when we are working with artists, um, how do we say okay, this is what we have to do to be able to take this concept in your head and record it in this immersive audio format and have it translate to different. Um, systems so that you hear what, so that is being played back in the way you want people to hear and experience that work. Hello, Tom. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you doing? Very well. I haven't seen you for a couple of years. Um, I believe last time I came to see you in your studio at Somerset was just before the whole madness with the pandemic uh, kicked off. Um, how have you been? What, what's been happening? Uh, yeah, I think I've been I've been okay. I think like everyone, um, it's been a challenge uh, financially with the studio, and you know, just uh, personally and emotionally, it's always it's been tough for everyone. Um, but we're still here. I think um, you know the Arts Council have been great. Somerset House have been great. There's a lot of support out there. I know that uh, a lot of the culture industry is kind of. Uh, having a go at the government for not supporting them. But I think if for the kind of small guys like me, um, the support's been there. Um, so I know a lot, you know, a lot of individual artists or small kind of creative outfits have, have been able to tap into um, lots of sort of emergency grants and stuff. So we, we've, uh, 
yeah, we're still here. Um, and things are looking looking good for next year, I think. Yeah, sorry to start on a slightly somber note, but um, <laughs> I guess that's kind of, that's the last thing I remember because I literally remember announcements when they came upstairs and yeah. grabbed the coffee and started reading the the news and it was all just sort of unfolding real time. Mm-hmm. So it kind of really stuck in my head. Fast forward two years, luckily, I mean, at least here in the UK for the time being, we're recording this podcast on the 12th of July. As it stands, the government is planning to lift um, majority of the remaining restrictions associated with COVID-19 uh, pandemic, which means um, all kinds of positive changes for the live music sector, including mm. your niche of activities. Speaking of which, how did you get into spatial audio to start with? Uh, I studied popular music at Goldsmiths University. Um, and I, think I finished there in 2007-ish. And they had a really strong um, sort of experimental culture within the music department, um, which included uh, lots of interesting... Um, technicians and lecturers that were into kind of music concrete and live electronics, kind of interactive music systems. Um, There's lots of multi-channel audio stuff going on. Um, And they used to do a series of concerts um, by the Goldsmiths Music Studios that were staff and student work. Um, But they had this, uh, remember they had this eight-channel Mackie system. So it was eight Mackie SRM450s, if if you can remember those. Very... um, not studio uh, quality speakers at all, but um, it just—I was just—I just remember going to one of the concerts and listening to this weird. This is the first time I was exposed to um, kind of experimental electronics as well, um, and so hearing these kind of uh, really unconventional sort of abstract electronica um, and music concrete also played out over a eight-channel system, and it just yeah, I just really really liked it. Um, just found it really kind of. Uh, super compelling um and just felt like really emotionally involved uh really emotionally connected to it straight away um partly because of the the content but also because of the the way it was delivered um and it was in this big uh i don't know if you've ever been to goldsmiths but they've got this big grand hall where they have uh concerts so you know there's big kind of big kind of reverb in there and this eight channel system was pumping out this weird electronica um yeah i just had a bit of a moment um, so I went to the studio and just said, you know, what, how can I, how can I do something with this system? So they've, they've got had an eight-channel um, Adam system in there, um, and then as I moved through my, the years of my degree, getting to kind of the, I think the second or third year, you, the options opened up to move away from performance. So, so I played the drums um, to move away from performance and into um, like more studio composition work. So I took those pathways. And just spent as much time in that eight-channel studio as I could, um, uh, and yeah, so you know, lots of sort of um, academic assignments using eight-channel. And then I did my masters there and kind of pursued it further. Um, and everything, everything I was doing then was always in eight-channel. I couldn't uh, couldn't imagine sort of doing stuff in stereo or doing stuff for headphones, which I've never liked. Um, stereo is fine, but I've never liked headphones, um, headphone pieces. Um, and then obviously my master's finished. And uh, so then all of a sudden I'd spent, you know, sort of the last four or five years um, having almost daily access to this eight-channel studio. And then it was all just done. So I thought, okay, um, how can I continue uh, to make work and, you know, uh, curate work as well? I was quite interested in putting on work by other people as well as my own. Um, so I hooked up with uh, 
guy called Matt Lewis and Jeremy Keenan, and we started Call and Response. So we, I think we might have hired some Genelec, hired eight Genelecs for our first concert, and then slowly we bought some. So we kind of just started building up the system from there. And uh, yeah, mm-hmm. and then the Call and Response kind of just evolved from there. Can you tell us more about your company, Call and Response? What kind of work um, you are doing, and uh, what what's your niche of specialism specifically? So it's primarily um, immersive audio work for physical spaces like galleries or um, sort of AV installations, experiential stuff. Um, and then more recently, um, uh, we we started moving into live music, um, particularly because I was interested in uh, how, uh, cracking kind of this, solving this problem of um, performative uh, work done via multi-channel systems. Um, I've been something I've been banging on about for ages, um, trying to convince artists and musicians, so artists and musicians from more kind of traditional music background to get to to think start thinking about delivering work in multi-channel. Because I think when you talk to experimental artists or um, you know sort of audiovisual artists or digital artists, they're they're kind of already there um, conceptually. It doesn't take a lot of convincing or explaining to that why their why their um, video piece should have a surround sound system uh, accompanying it. They, you know, it's, that's not a, that's not a hard sell at all. But musicians are a bit more um, uh, what's the word? It's a bit more resistant to um, I found to move out of their kind of um, comfort zone. And I think that goes back to one of the things that you and Monica were just discussing. It's this kind of the ecosystem hasn't evolved yet. Um, for live musicians to be able to, so, you know, venues don't support it. It's only now, it's only just now that um, there's other kind of releasable formats that support spatial audio. Um, so that's the area that we've been moving into the last, um, well, actually, <laughs> the projects that we're, where we're moving into that were just starting to materialise right at the, right on the edge with the, where the pandemic hit. So we, we actually had two live projects lined up that we had to quickly pivot online, um, which was, kind of heartbreaking in lots of ways because we spend a lot of time you know mixing it on this 25 channels 27 channel system and then <laughs> the thought that everyone's just going to have it listening have listen to it on their laptops or on their on their phones is um i don't know try not to think about that part yeah this is something i'm actually very interested in is the you know working with artists and um trying to mm. translate you know the what exactly is immersive or a spatial audio to to them? And so I'd ask, you know, like what what would you say is the hardest concept to get across to the artists as they move into working in immersive spaces? And what is some advice you have to artists who want to get evol- involved in immersive? The hardest thing to communicate, uh, or the hardest concept to get across is, um, I, I think quite often musicians in particular um, don't think about the system that they're or, or, or it's not a priority for them to think about the system that is going to deploy their art and their music but for me um the system is like it's a it's an instrument in itself it's a creative tool um, and the spatialization of stuff is is another composition part of the compositional process um but that's not the case with a, a musician you know they'll, they'll they'll write a song or you know the, the the crafting of the lyrics is their kind of um thing that they focus on or the or you know the the chord progression or the arrangement or whatever um so yeah trying to explain to them that um okay you're used to dealing with pitch timbre tempo rhythm 
um, now you've got space. That's another uh, compositional element that you can think about. It, it, it's, it takes quite a while to sink in, and it's only really once they come to the studio and listen to a lot of the back catalogue of stuff that we've got that it really starts to sink in. And it, it nearly always changes their um, approach to, to writing as well, because quite often we'll, um, and I prefer it this way as well, we'll work with artists who've got a very well-formed idea or it's, or it's almost finished or it's actually finished. So we've taken stereo albums that have just been mixed and mastered and everything and then gone back a few steps, to, uh, you know, stemmed everything out and then start to rebuild it, start to spatialise it. And nine times out of ten, you find that um, the arrangement shouts out to be revisited. Um, quite often we, we end up stripping stuff out. The like, percussive elements um, often need thinning out and, and making more space. So, yeah, it's, it's, it has a big impact on the compositional process, but um, I think before the artist actually starts working, that's, that's the hardest bit to say, to, that's the hardest bit to communicate that they can work in with space. Not least because, you know, hardly anyone's ever um, had experience or, or have, has access to, to uh, multi-channel studios. So what, what is some advice you have to artists who want to get involved? Um, advice? Uh, you can come and see us. Um, uh, there are a few places in Europe where you can do residency. You guys probably know about 4D Sound in um, the Spatial Sound Institute in Budapest and Monum in Berlin. Um, there are some others that I can't quite think of. It's, I might get in touch with them. Though nearly all of them run, run residencies, um, and you can sort of apply and, and you know propose a project. Um, other than that, it's um, kind of downloading and playing around with um, the spatial audio um, suites that are available, you know, like the Blue Ripple stuff. Um, Dolby Atmos for Music is looks quite good now. Um, all of them have got binaural decoders uh, built in, so you can monitor in, in, in stereo your spatial mix, but that'll only really get you so far. Um, really, <laughs> the thing to do is, you know, start building up a speaker system if you're really interested in it. Um, uh, you know, to start with like four speakers or something. And I think that's going to give you a good enough idea of what it's like to um, have space as a, uh, at your, uh, in your toolkit of, of, of compositional aesthetics, I think. Um, yeah, I was going to ask, so would you mind sharing a bit about your technical process? Um, I noticed on your call and response website, most exhibitions are listed as ambisonics mixes. Yeah. Do you primarily work with ambisonics or what are some other spatialization techniques you've explored? Um, yeah, we mostly mostly work in ambisonics um, for several reasons. I mean, I can give you like a a proper studio nerd um, rundown of, of like signal flow and, and all the kind of gear we use, if that's what you're after. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> oh yes. We, we like right. studio nerding stuff. <laughs> all right, cool. All right, here we go. <laughs> um, okay, well, uh, so in kind of terms of, I guess there's two kind of ways to explain this. There's like a general kind of workflow um, and then there's the the kind of the way everything's plugged in. So I'll start with the, the way everything's plugged in. Um, so primarily work in Reaper because we use um, ambisonics. Um, Reaper's necessary because you need, um, so if we're working third order ambisonics, you need a minimum of 16 channels per track. Um, and Reaper's one of the only doors that will do that. Pro Tools will do it, but um, 
it's too expensive, I think, and it's not worth it. Reaper's a great alternative. Uh, you can you can um, download these uh, skins as well. People make Pro Tools skins for Reaper, so you don't have to change the kind of look and feel of it too much. Um, and you can reset all your commands, key commands as well. Anyway, um, so then um, plugged into my iMac Pro, I have uh, Antelope Goliath, which is a 64-channel Thunderbolt interface. And then I take the... So the Blue Ripple Ambisonic decoder decodes to the bespoke 25.2 um, sort of dome-like configuration that you can see. Um, and then, so the first 32 channels of that come out as MADI and go into an Antelope Orion, um, which then does the, um, the, the the digital to audio conversion. And then that uh, feeds the speakers. And then that leaves me with uh, another 32 channels that I can route out into a small desk I've got, and I've just actually took delivery of an Eventide H9000R, which I'm very excited about. So, and that can process 16 channels um, of effects simultaneously, so I can then route that back in um, and route and out through the decoder. Um, and that's that, yeah, that's that in terms of how far, how much everything's plugged in. Oh, the speaker systems are Genelec systems. So I have eight 8050s uh, on a bottom ring of eight. And then the rest are 80-30, so it goes uh, 8, 8, 4, 4, and then 1 in the middle. So if you imagine a dome. Um, and, and so for those of us that are bad at math, how many channels is that? That's 25.2, so two subs. Yeah, 27 satellites and two subs. Awesome. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a lot, it's a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, so then a kind of general workflow um, will be... Uh, Mostly ambisonics because um, uh, most of the time I have to send the um, final render to a gallery somewhere and the gallery uh, hardly ever has budget for the same speaker rate or, or the size or whatever. So quite often I'm decoding to like a 16-channel system or an 8-channel system or something like that. Sometimes they'll have a standard um, Dolby system, you know, like a 5 or 7.1 if they've got like a cinema room installed in the gallery or something. Um so the great thing about ambisonics, as you guys know, is that you can, um, from your third order sort of master bus, decode to an arbitrary speaker array. So that can be any size or shape or number of speakers that you want, including mono. Um, so do you do all the decoding in-house? Yes. Yeah. Um, and then you send them. So do you get the uh, position of where their speakers are that you're trying to decode to and then you do the decoding and send them the yeah. file or yeah exactly okay. so um what i usually do is i'll the gallery will usually have a, a dwg a um like a cad drawing of the space um, and i'll import that into sketchup um so that lets me see kind of where the the doors are the entrance the exits fire escapes um, any other kind of projectors or screens that are being rigged and where all the artworks might be. Um, and then I can see in 3D space where I can place speakers. So then I'll, I'll do a kind of speaker array design, um, send it back to them for approval. Usually this is me and the um, tech team at the tech team at the gallery. Um, and then I'll, everything's referenced to a central point. So each speaker has a XYZ position in space reference back to a central zero 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 location um and then i build a decoder based on that and then render the final mix to that decoder um and it, it's never i've never had any um issues with it. it i've never had any complaints it's always um 
it's always quite difficult to, uh, especially when people don't know that kind of workflow, the, you know, the, like the curator or the producer at the gallery, they're, they're always quite sceptical about how well it will transfer. Um, but it actually does a really good job. The, the Blue Ripple stuff does a really good job of um, transferring. I've never had to adjust anything or, or, um, or adjust the mix in any way. You can just switch decoders, render and send the file. What's the max uh, audio um, amount of audio channels that the Blue Ripple plugin does? Or is there a um, max? It's, yeah, it's third order. So, oh, the decoder? Yeah. Um, that's, um, I think in theory, that's limited only by your CPU. So, um, yeah, I think you could do a lot. <laughs> Hundreds, perhaps, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you actually have to check on, the, on their website. It, I think it, it might be something like 128, but it's, it's, it's a number that um, you'd never probably come up against, if you see what I mean. I think I think there's a just a slight distinction between uh, two solutions that are available as part of the Blue Ripple ecosystem. If you get the the Panner and the, the standard decoder, I think that's limited to third order. Mm. But if you if you get Rapture 3D, which is this uh, uh, ultimate yeah. decoder package that pretty much does everything there is at the moment, um, I think yeah that one is um, pretty much unlimited. But it comes as a additional set of tools and if, if I if I recall correctly yeah yeah that's true and that's the only one that will let you do a bespoke shaped array as well so if you get the standard package or the free one then you just get a list of kind of standard speaker layouts to choose from so you know 5.1 7.1 maybe uh, maybe an eight channel yeah so yeah so that yeah so that's 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 the the general workflow um and uh yeah I've found it it kind of works well especially when you can show people a 3d Render a three D image of of the speaker layout before before it goes because I mean I found that that's half the battle is kind of getting that getting around the f- practical problems of a gallery space you know. So when you when you're in your DAW session and you use three um, D Panner, uh, Blue Rip or Facebook whatever, do you ever alternate between headphones and speakers? Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Particularly. Um, the last two projects uh, that we did, the ones that were going to be live, but then um, ended up on, uh, well, one of them ended up on YouTube and the other one ended up on, um, we used something called Omnitone, which is, um, I think it was a Google project, um, which is a third order to binaural web-based decoder um, that you can also link up with uh, a 3D environment. So you, so we... The developers built one in um, 3JS, I think it's called, which is like an OpenGL um, web-based 3D authoring tool. Um, so when the, much much works much in the same way as rotating 360 video, you know, it rotates the sound field with it. Um, so yeah, 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 I do. I um, I had to frequently switch between um, headphones and the speaker system. So, so for example, if you if you have double delivery and you you work you're crafting for headphone delivery with binaural decoder, and then you switch to speakers, it, you don't really feel that it's it's a problem at all uh, once you switch back to the speakers. No, most of the time I'm um, I'm just checking that um, it's not lopsided in the headphones because w- what sounds like nice and kind of diffuse and balanced in on a multi-channel speaker system. Obviously, doesn't on a on headphones because you're not you're not really getting the front and back and and um, uh, elevation positions um, 
in much in, in any kind of any kind of meaningful way i think <laughs> um I, yeah i've i've got a problem with deco- um uh binaural decoders i've never really heard one that i liked well i don't want to open another can of worms here but um <laughs> i think in the context of music i think you will never find one mm. because no. i think it's just it just doesn't make sense um i i, th- I think uh, for narrative work Absolutely, hundred percent. I think in, without it, it just doesn't make sense. But when it comes to music, yeah. we we're so used to yeah. hear the 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 timbral fidelity of stereo productions. Uh, even as we mm. move on to, you know, uh, different different formats, um, we still expect that um, punchiness, fullness, full bodiness, the low end, the top end, mm. the clarity. And once you start f- adding filters, it's, it's just you just chipping away from yeah. from that quality yeah um, uh, yeah I, uh, yeah and I, yeah i agree i mean uh, actually um yes yes for um uh, you know narrative work like if you're doing something in vr where um you need that sound scene to rotate um, and it's like critical to the whole experience of course um but also actually i've found that um if you're doing something like really kind of floaty and ambient that's that kind of works fine as well i think it's when there's um when there's a kind of distinct separation between sources uh, and that's heard as soon as you, if you move, you know, as soon as you move your head um, through 90 degrees or whatever, then the sources you've left behind, they more or less disappear, not disappear, but they, you know, they're filtered out. Um, and then all of a sudden the mix is kind of wonky um, and has, and for me, quite often appears to have a hole in it. But yeah, you're right. Only, only with kind of traditional music when you can, um, you know, all of the sound sources, like I say, have got their own kind of space. Um, but I did a piece for I did a VR piece for uh, that was a kind of underwater sort of ambient sounding track, um, and I found that 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 was actually fine because um, the sounds were so uh, largely spread across the 360 scene anyway. So when 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 they rotated it, not, there was no kind of lumpiness or holes left. I wanted to talk to you and ask you about your project that you did um, for the 4D sound system as part of the Spatial Sound Institute. Um, what was that experience like and what were some differences you found working in the 4D sound system compared to your, uh, you know, your, your, your um, normal process? Um, yeah, it's really different. Like, yeah, just technically it's really different. Um, it's um, based across two computers. So you have a spatialization machine and then you have your, your kind of compositional environment. And then so you can stay in... Um, Ableton Live or Max or or whatever you're kind of working in, and then you just send OSC as positional data along with the um, along with the audio to the spatialization computer. Um, so it's a bit different in that way. Um, but the tools that they've developed, the um, the kind of they've got this suite of sort of spatial synthesis tools, which is super cool. Um, I've never been able to create. Kind of effects like that with just moving a sound through space. You can like the the the, the degree to which you can um, stretch and kind of mangle the sound just with kind of wacky and really rapid spatial movement. Or um, and it's the only software that I've come across that gives sound a, a kind of volumetric shape. So you can define like a cube or an oblong or um, a sphere or a cylinder or something, and then rotate that in space. And that so that, so the sound kind of appears as a you know like a line in space or, or a rectangle in space, and then you can rotate that and move that around. Um, that's pretty cool. Um, and that opens up lots of uh, creative 
avenues. Um, but we uh, we also did combined with that piece. We we synced up a, a laser um, projection system that we, that we built that had twenty four lasers. Um, that were kind of positioned down the length of the space and each laser had a synth voice assigned to it in the same space as the laser was. So every time the laser came on, that synth voice came on as well. So we were able to move space and kind of chase space and light through, uh, sound and light through the space. Um, So, yeah, it's really exciting. You know, it's such a big space as well. Um, You've got six metres above you and six metres below and the speaker columns go underneath the floor and all the subs are underneath the floor. So you've got six metres below you with a with this big array of subs. Um, they've also got transducers in the floor, this kind of mesh floor. Um, so you can uh, move, you can pan a vibration around, around the floor, which is um, pretty exciting. Yeah, there's something really nice about um, the way they set up their array, the speaker array, it's, it's all done in columns um, rather than, um, I think most people are used to hearing um, multi-channel speaker systems as a peripheral setup, you know, so you you know, you know occupy a space kind of as, as close to the middle as you can and then the, the speakers are all projected inwards, um, focused inwards. Um, but this is, uh, yeah, this is like a column, a matrix, a column, uh, column matrix of, of speakers so it changed i think it really changed the um the way the audience behave in the space it's just you know that doesn't feel like there's really takes away any kind of sense of orientation in the space so people wandered around a lot more and people generally facing lots of different directions um so you just have this big sort of sound stage you know something's happening over there and something has happening over there and then it comes closer it's, it, it, yeah it's, it's it's nice i mean it does it does help that um they've got you know, like a twenty-five by fifteen meter space or something is is pretty cavernous, um, which adds to the to the drama of the whole thing. What exactly was your project? And could you explain a little bit more about what you were hoping to achieve in working in that space? Yeah, so I was trying to, um, the concept was to um, kind of highlight this fact of, of the screen, like a flat screen as a kind of portal to the 3D world beyond it. So, you know, the, the illusion that there's a space behind a screen or, or within a screen, because we're always looking at 3D graphics or stuff. And then also combined with the illusion of, because um, you could do distance encoding with the um, well, with lots of systems, but particularly so you can create an, quite a convincing illusion that the a sound has gone beyond the boundary of the speaker array. So um, I was considering those two sort of kind of a difference between virtual and real space. So the real space being the gallery space that you're in, and the virtual space being the one that's simulated behind behind a screen and, and outside the speaker array. So the screen acts as this kind of boundary. Um, 
and then we had animated graphics on the screen um, that mirrored the laser array on the inside of the space. So and then the lasers would chase down towards the screen, hit the screen, and then the graphics would take over. So the graphics were synced with the laser projector and the and the um, Amazon and the um, 4D spatialization. Um, so I really, yeah, I was really wanted to play with that idea of um, uh, kind of perception of space toggling like quickly or oscillating quickly between virtual and real space. And so I guess you know this kind of ties into um, you know this question about uh, you're you know you're an artist yourself, like you work with other artists, but you're also an artist. And um, from an artistic standpoint, as you move forward in your work, what are you hoping to achieve? I'm still really, really interested in liveness. Um, I really, really want to get a uh, a show together where there's a, a series of performers, um, and it's done in uh, with a big uh, surround system. Um, I'm particularly interested in what that does to a kind of audience performer um, relationship. How that's kind of staged, how it's set up, what you do to kind of sort of as a producer, um, what you do to deal with the um, previous experiences of audiences, right? So, um, you know, when you go to a gig, you know what to do because you've done it before. You know, you face the front, you face the stage, um, you know, the bars at the back, etc. It's kind of like a, we've all learned that behaviour and various kind of different types of concert you could go to. You know how to behave. You go to the theatre, same cinema. But if there was a Venn diagram that had kind of theatre, uh, art gallery, live music show and they all crossed over i'm interested in that space where they all cross over um so yeah uh, uh, working with people like movement directors people from that kind of um scenographic uh, um and kind of um movement director theater background along with audiovisual artists and musicians i think that's really where i want to place myself um uh yeah the live scene is definitely an exciting space. That's personally my favorite space to work in as well. Have you presented much in live before or is mostly gallery or? Mostly gallery. We did um, work with an artist called Warsnare um, a couple of years ago now. And we did a, a show um, at a place, a theatre called the Albany Theatre um, in Deptford. Uh, and that was... Um, Kind of, kind of what I described, but it was like our first um, attempt at it. So we had, um, so he, uh, Dan Walsner, Dan Potter, um, had just finished his kind of electronica album, and he came to me and he said, "I want to do something in three D sound." So okay, so we sort of went, took, took a few steps back, stemmed out all the tracks, started to spatialize it, and then thought about what was going to be done live and what was going to be done playback. So we had there were strings on the album. Um, percussion, uh, synth stuff. So it, uh, vocals. So live, we were gonna, we did vocals, uh, cello and violin. Uh, sorry, cello and viola. Um, an electronic percussionist, synths and vocals. Um, and then the rest was playback. And there's a lot of challenges involved in kind of um, <laughs> monitoring. It was a nightmare. Uh, Oh yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, for figuring out a way for them to monitor and play to the, to the to the backing track was was difficult, but we did it. But the the biggest challenge actually that we I think we underestimated the most was what what do you do with the audience when you've got performers um, 
and you you don't want to draw you don't want to have attention focused on one part of the space because you you want people to be kind of attuned to the to the to the spherical nature of the sound um but you still got the performance somewhere so we put the performances around the outside of the space in a circle um and then the audience is in the middle but we found that uh the audience didn't they didn't really know what to do. They were kind of looking in all directions and they, they um, I think they felt a bit uncomfortable. So that, that's why I was saying before about I'm, I'm interested in kind of solving this or, or coming up with a, uh, a clever idea, a clever way of, of, um, of making that work. I, I'm pretty sure it can be done. Um, I'm just not sure how yet. Um, but I think it's the, the answer is to work with um, people who are used to thinking about physical space, bodies in space, so, you know, theatre people and um, visual artists who, uh, you know, design spaces for exhibitions, that kind of thing. People just get lost and get confused uh, because they expect this kind of centre stage perspective where to look yeah. towards, where to kind of to be anchored to. And when you provide them with this sort of more diffused, you know, execution of sound as well as the space they're not used to they just sort of don't know what to do with themselves mm, yeah i think that's got a lot to do with it and you know like i was saying about past experiences with people if you you know if you build something as a um you know if you describe it as an electronic music show um you know there's kind of, sort of bits of house and drum and bass in there and stuff i think mo you know most people know what that is but then that then comes with the baggage of all the stuff that they've done like that before so they they come expecting to to be it's like a kind of you know semi club semi live music show okay that's great everyone can understand that um so they turn up wanting to behave in that way how they usually behave when they do those things um and of course you know that's that's completely to be expected so it's really on the producers of of this stuff if you know if you want to do it right it's it's really on us to think about how to um get people attuned to 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 the space and the experience that we want to get across. Um, uh, yeah, and, uh, and, you know, I think that's that the answer is in a number of things. It's like how you describe it, but it's also how you kind of get people into the space, you know, kind of onboarding, that kind of funny word. Um, you know, how, yeah, how you might tease out some uh, some little bits of material beforehand. Um, yeah, I think there's, there's all kinds of things that can be done. Mm. Yeah, I think there's definitely a retraining, mm. you know, of the audience. Um, I know, especially, you know, when museums started uh, having interactive work, I know that there was this retraining that happened had to happen with the audience members coming in because, you know, for so long we've been taught to go into a gallery, you don't touch mm. anything, you stand far back. But then as soon as you start adding in these interactive pieces that the mm. whole concept is you need to go in and touch and interact with this stuff. Yeah. You, you have to teach the audience that this is what you can do now and yeah. this is what you do with that work. Um, I'm yeah. very fascinated in how you, how especially in these immersive and live uh, performance spaces, how you can get people to move or interact in yeah. a space without narratively telling them or without actually using words to say this is what you do. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, yeah, and, and I, I like your... Um, museum analogy because of course now if you're of a certain generation or certain age um you go into a museum and you expect any every screen there to be some kind of touch screen interactive um you know especially you know younger kids they go and they just they want to touch everything now because they know they can and they know usually it does something um 
so I guess it doesn't take long for people to 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 get used to things. Um, and as, as I guess something kind of kind of related is you know the the, the whole movement of immersive theatre. Now lots of people are kind of quite used to going to sort of theatre experiences where they move through spaces and they kind of become part of a narrative and. Um, it's not such a wacky uh, thing for people to do anymore. Um, so, yeah, I guess um, we could do the same with, with music and with live music. Tom, can you tell us more about the Project Assembly 2020? What's that about? That was a um, residency stroke live music project I did for Somerset House. Um, so they, every year, uh, not this year, but every year they have uh, a music experimental music season, season that they call Assembly. Assembly is their annual experimental music program. So that usually consists of a series of kind of curated um, music shows uh, um, and then sort of around that there are talks and, and workshops and stuff. Um, so we did, well, the idea was that we were going to do five residencies, deliver five residencies, so five musicians, um, sort of sound artists, straight musicians, um, who were then going to come to the studio and then we were going to work on um, sort of a 40-minute performance of their um, stuff. So this could have been existing stuff or brand new stuff um, and uh, mix that and, and spatialise that into into a format that we could do live. But, um, of course, all the live stuff didn't happen. So we quickly had to put that online. Um, and that's where we used the Omnitone um, third-order to binaural thing that I was telling you about Um so we still went ahead with the residencies as as planned. So all the artists came to the studio. They all did, uh, I can't remember, it was like 15 sessions or something. And they all produced quite a wide, wide range of works. So some, sort of some stuff that was uh, like Lorraine James was kind of really kind of, um, you know, urban electronica stuff. And then there was a uh, saxophonist called Ben Vince who made this kind of quite atmospheric textural kind of stuff that works really well in spatial audio. Um, yeah, so I worked with visual artists and, um, yeah, and then the work was uh, mixed into um, Third Order Ambisonics and then a team from a digital collective called Black Shook put together a um, 3D uh, web-based environment that basically functions like a 360 video. So you can, basically the, the listener... Um, perspective is from the center of this sphere and you can scroll around the sphere with your with your mouse um and then the, the sound field kind of rotates with it so yeah that's how the work was presented um but you know i've still got it all in uh, mixed in 25.2 um so hopefully one day at least some of it will see uh, we'll see a live situation Our hot topic today is, we're not sure, <laughs> but um, well, essentially, Tom, you, you have you have quite a pedigree uh, working with music-centric artists and uh, your role, kind of classically speaking, is a kind of a, a diffuser in a sense that you try to translate their vision and in a kind of spatial audio domain in, in, in a variety of ways. So... I guess what we wanted to explore today is is this kind of relationship between you as an engineer and how do you define the meaning of immersive audio or immersive music 
to the artists who um, maybe currently not equipped with with such knowledge, terminology, and in fact experience, but kind of want to pivot into that space, but not not really able to communicate the same level as they would be able to to do when it comes to talking about you know stereo production paradigms. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I guess I guess to give a little context on this com- hot topic conversation, which we don't have a you know that 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 catchy title for um, <laughs> was. I, I, you know, I was hanging out with some artist friends the other day that are starting to work, you know, in immersive, and they, they were just confused about, well, what is immersive? What does it actually mean? What's the difference between surround sound and spatial audio? And there's all of these words that people are throwing around these days that, um, you know, artists. I've, I've found, you know, I'm finding that artists is just are having a hard time really understanding. Like, what do I need to do if I want to create an immersive piece of work? Like, what format am I recording in? How am I then distributing this? Um, you know, and so I think, you know, coming from this context of if you're talking to a lot of the more traditional audio world, you know, surround sound has kind of been the, you know, big immersive format for a long time. And now that we have this spatial audio format, how do we communicate the difference between, you know, what is spatial audio and what is surround sound and what is 3D audio versus spatial versus surround? Are they the same thing? Is immersive kind of overarching term that covers all of it? None of those terms have a uh, technical definition, you know, spatial audio or 3D sound. Or, I mean, apart from the obvious, you know, 3D sound is... So, I mean, but I've even had, um, I've even had people... Uh, question that when I say oh, I work whenever if I use the term 3D sound particularly um, academics actually who work in, in audio and they, there's a, quite often I've heard a few people say um, well, isn't all sound 3D um, and sometimes they're deliberately missing the point um, but other times they are genuinely confused um, and as soon as you tell someone that uh, okay yeah of course all sound exists in three-dimensional space and time um but it doesn't the point source location isn't three-dimensional so you know obviously with a stereo system it's across a 2d plane um and then we can just describe the third dimension as uh, a z-axis and then all of a sudden they understand so you know imagine uh, particularly when you're talking to an artist imagine if you could place that sound then over there um that's when it starts to kind of sink in a little bit when that when they kind of work backwards from something that they they might be able to do with it. Um, and then I think in terms of like navigating through all of those different formats, so, you know, if, especially now since Dolby have just released and um, just, uh, just uh, hooked up with Apple to, to drive their um, spatial audio, I think it's going to get even more confusing because now... Th- they they want to brand all of this stuff. So you now you've got Sony 360 AR, I think it's called, and then you've got Dolby Atmos for music um, or Apple Apple Spatial Audio, and then um, yeah, all of then all of then under Dolby Atmos you've got all of the different Atmos configurations, um, and then Ambisonics, and then um, what people, some people call in the uh, sort of experimental music scene, good old-fashioned multi-channel, which just means you <laughs> address one particular sound source to a particular speaker, and that's it. Uh, what other what other formats are there? Oh, binaural, dynamic binaural. Um, I guess 
the the main thing I'd say to artists is about how if they're asking like, oh, how do I deploy this? How do I um, what tools do I need? I guess it's just you just have to work back from what you want to do. So if you're particularly interested in you know producing sound for a VR experience, then that's gonna necessarily um, answer a few questions for you. You're probably gonna need to work in Ambisonics um, and then have some kind of binaural decode on it. And then if you want to do something to picture, you're probably going to... And, and it needs to be distributed in uh, cinemas or um, quite often art galleries will have um, Dolby-based systems just because that's what they know or that's what the engineer knew about when they put them in. Yeah, Tom, I, I completely agree with you. And um, be it music industry or kind of live music sector, and to an extent, the same applies to other verticals of our industry, so to speak the best place to start is kind of working backwards and trying to understand what are the deliverables, not even deliverables, you define deliverables based on kind of larger picture that you then uh, identify with, with with your, you know, prospective client um, and then kind of build it from there. Because the reason why it's confusing, because it's genuinely is confusing, it's not because we're all confused, it's because the situation is not as straightforward uh, for 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 everyday mm. uh, participants of this ecosystem, let alone people who just coming in and don't really have the technical background. Technically speaking, surround sound is two dimensional, so it's it's automatically not three D sound. Um, when you start throwing terms like three D sound, spatial sound, that's probably more technical, more scientific description of um, yeah such concepts and. Perhaps you can throw immersive sound into that, but then when you do use word immersive, I think it's a bit more subjective, unless you have a like pre-agreed uh, definition of that term. You know, um, mm. anything could be immersive. It could be um, a, a mono sound uh, could be immersive due to the nature of that stimulus, whatever that is. Um, and uh, a, a, you know, a very complex three D mix could be very unimmersive because it's just not doing it for you. Um, and then a massive component in all of this is HRTF, mm. which sometimes does not apply depending on what kind of content you 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 working with. Like you said, working with VR, narrative work or films. And if you want three degrees of freedom, mm. then, you know, we're talking about uh, binaural audio as a, as a must, as a component, um, uh, be it static, or be it dynamic with three doff, hmm. and then we have this element of head tracking, which is kind of equivalent to be surrounded by the physical speakers in space versus being in a virtual space, uh, hearing sound decoded through binaural decoder uh, with head tracking. Um, I mean, so many things and variables already, um, and we, you know, we're just scratching the surface. And um, mm. but but yeah, I, I think I think the one of the takeaways is kind of trying to understand the the core objective of the conversational project and then kind of peel it back because otherwise it can be too, too overwhelming. And I think, I mean, really a lot of these terms, I don't think do have necessarily an agreed upon definition. I think there's, you know, everybody has a slightly different definition. And, um, you know, I know uh, the, the way I like to try to explain the difference between surround sound and spatial audio um, is that with surround sound, you're moving the sound from this speaker to that speaker. And with spatial audio, you're moving the sound from here to there. And it's kind of about, 
you know, using algorithms that are making the uh, speaker array more transparent or more, you know, kind of um, invisible where, you know, with surround sound, it's very much based on this panning between speakers and using of this phantom imagery to create the idea of a sound in this space. Um, you know, and the spatial stuff, I do think, you know, there is, uh, you know, I mean, ambisonics, I consider to be a spatial audio algorithm. I also consider, you know, VBAP, DBAP um, to be spatial audio algorithms. Uh, and, you know, and then we have, you know, these companies, you know, Dolby and Sony and Aura 3D, you know, and these that are starting to develop these spatial audio formats. And, you know, of course, it's somewhat pri proprietary what algorithms they're using, but I'm sure it's based on, you know, some of these algorithms that have been out there for a while. And, you know, and it's, I think, again, there still is this confusion of, okay, I'm an artist, I'm a musical artist, and I want to, immersive is now becoming this big word and this big term, and I'm hearing it everywhere, and I, I want to be involved. And, you know, and, and especially if you're coming from a more traditional um, music production standpoint and you're, you know, working, you know, in the more traditional music industry and don't have as much experience with kind of the art sound, you know, world of things that have been doing just weird experimentations with, you know, immersive or spatial audio for a really long time. You know, it's like you're asking these questions to your engineer of, okay, well, how do I, you know, how do I, like, should I record in surround sound? And then can I put that into spatial audio? Um, and, you know, just those basic questions, I think, are very, um, you know, confusing when an artist is trying to figure out, well, I, I want to create an immersive piece and then I want it to be able to perform it live. And then I want to be able to have it hosted on these streaming platforms. And especially as these new, you know, uh, now these streaming platforms are announcing, oh, we host spatial audio. What does that, what does that actually mean? Yeah. And I guess, um, I guess this is this could be the watershed, you know. Once, once the um, uh, what was it? Uh, yeah, so once these once these kind of giants of industry uh, get behind something like you're saying, then this is when the ecosystem develops to a point where, um, it, you know, it's in their interest to make to get people making content. So they start making tools that are accessible and, and have a sh you know a, a, a not such a steep learning curve. You know, stuff that can be used in regular uh, music software like Logic or Ableton or whatever. Um, and it's, that's that's at the point where um, you know the content starts, the, the the volume of content starts starts to increase, and then that then the mark, then the audiences obviously increase, um, and then I think the kind of final uh, stage to that is that um, live music spaces um, start to uh, really think that they need um, spatial audio systems to kind of keep up with demand. You know, there's a, there's a there's a handful already. You know, like um, uh, Ministry of Sound famously put an Atmos system in, um, and a few, I guess there's a few other um, places, and that's where I think um, you know the, the the big live big live music guys like Lisa and um, uh, Audio DMB, Audio Soundscape um, will will start to uh, see a, a big rise in demand by venues for their systems. Yeah, no, definitely. I guess one of my questions would be, um, I think, Tom, you know, you've come from uh, this more, I think, kind of sound art space. And, you know, you're working with Ambisonics, which is 
um, you know, more of just an algorithm that a lot of people have been working with for a while to do, you know, the decoding and the, in, the encoding and the decoding of these spatial audio environments. Um, and now that we do have these bigger players getting involved, um, how much do you think that, I mean, with your work and, you know, as you move forward, are you going to try to embrace some of that or are you going to try to stick with, you know, what you know with the ambisonics world? Do you think that there's limitations with, uh, you know, Dolby Atmos that, you know, you can't get that are hard to, you know, get over, especially, um, you know, when you come from more like an ambisonics direction? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm... I'm not. I've never been wedded, like uh, sort of conceptually or emotionally, to any any way of any technical method of of, of making making this stuff. Um, so I've actually got a Lisa processor in my studio at the moment on loan um, because we we're working on a um, a live show. Um, and so I'm doing everything in the studio, decoding through this um, Lisa box. Um, that, that, that stuff's necessary. Amazonic stops being useful after a space gets over a certain size because the image starts to break down through um, uh, because of the time the sound takes to get to a certain point. So if you move, if an audience, if the space is of a certain, over, it's over about 12 metres, I think. Um, if you move the audience uh, of a certain distance from a loudspeaker, the, the sound, even though the sound may be in composition coming out after another sound, they'll hear that one first. So particularly if you've got any... Um, kind of percussive elements that need to be locked in. If there's any groove to the um, to this piece, then that will all start to break down quite quickly. Um, so you need <clears throat> you need a delay matrix that's built into these boxes that will do delay compensation in real time um, to get over that the the distance. So you know, I think we've all been to festivals or gigs where you can hear the speakers delayed um, slightly as they get to the back of the venue, uh, back at the back of the venue. Um, so basically, it's doing that. Um, but also live um, uh, panning a live input is um, if you need if you need to rely on playing back um, uh, if you need to rely on a, a live input being panned and um, a piece of playback uh, with and the, without the delay then uh, and that's I'm talking about the delay just caused by um, the recording input so the the buffer delay in your computer so again ambisonics will won't deal with that because you're obviously decoding through software and you're just monitoring, you're basically monitoring through your door um, the live output. So that, that's got all kinds of problems. So you need, you need these um, outboard processes to get over that stuff. So that's why they're, so people like Lisa and DMB Soundscape, they kind of inserted themselves into, well, they're, they're a big part of the live, um, live uh, sort of large sound reinforcement um, industry and theatre as well. You find a lot of these, these boxes in theatre spaces. Um, so they've hooked up with lots of the big desk manufacturers like Digico and I think SSL now support them. So you can have a, you know, a positional panner on a touchscreen um, on a digital desk. So, so that doesn't really interrupt a live front of house engineer's workflow too much. And then you can have um, playback coming back from, you know, the sound design of the sort of immersive sound design around the performers um, all coming through the desk. It's really interesting. Kind of like mainly uh, beds and objects. That's how people kind of treat majority of sounds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and there was, I did actually, there was a project. Um, so Sony 360R, I think, did something with Giles Peterson where he, he curated a, um, a series of tracks and then 
got the original um, recording files, or I think some of them was even on tape, um, and then took them to a, took them to a, a Sony engineer and they remixed them into Sony 360 AR. And then Giles Peterson DJed these multi-channel tracks out um, at a gig. So I think that so there's definitely, um, like I said, now those big players on board, they want, I think um, they see a value and it's, it's exciting for people to not only just stream this stuff into, onto their phones and, and listen to it on headphones, but if they can then, I think if they can cross-promote between a live show that's got, um, you know, a big Dolby Atmos system or a, a Sony 360R system or whatever, um, then they then, then they can kind of build a build excitement around it, and then more people think it's worth um, you know re-stream, re uh, re-downloading all of their entire music catalogue in in Atmos or 360AR. But for anyone who wants to find out more about yourself and what you do, what's the best, the easiest way to do so? Um, just go to our website, um, and our con- all our contact details are on there. And just get in touch. Um, yeah. And I'll, I'll usually get a reply pretty quickly. Tom, can you share one piece of advice that really helped you in your career? Just keep doing it. <laughs> keep doing, if you found something that you really like doing, if, you, if, you, if you're sure you like it, just keep doing it. Don't worry about, um, don't worry about if it's making you money quite yet. Obviously, we've all got to pay the bills, but keep doing it. Um, I do believe in if you build it, they will come. <laughs> Excellent. Tom, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Tom. All right. Nice one, guys. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Take care. Bye. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to show your support, please consider becoming a Patreon. Not only are you supporting us, but you will also get special access to bonus content and much more. Find out more on our official Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash immersive audio podcast. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast, hosted by Oliver Cadell and Monica Bowles. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell and Emma Reese and included music by Rhythm Scott. Got an idea for an episode or want to comment on something we've discussed recently? Drop us an email at podcast at 1618digital.com or find us on Twitter at iAudioPodcast. If you've enjoyed our show, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out. Visit 1618digital.com slash immersive audio podcast to access show notes and other episodes and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org. I'm Emily Reese from the podcast Level with Emily Reese, and I interview people who make audio for games, mostly composers. Our newest episode features composer Gordy Habb, about his music for Star Wars Squadrons, which is absolutely outstanding. You can find us at patreon.com slash level and levelwithemily.com. Hi, this is Michael Helms, host of the Location Sound Podcast. My recent guest is production sound mixer Byron Mayer, based out of Copenhagen, Denmark. We talk about recording sound on the feature film Torbos, the official Oscar entry for South Africa. Check out the latest episode. 
Hi, this is Christian from the A Sound Effect Podcast. In our latest episode, you'll hear field recordist adventurer George Vlad from Mindful Audio talk about his travels and work, including his latest library, African Desert, all at asoundeffect.com forward slash podcast. Hi all, this is Becky and Susan from the Sound Girls Podcast, where we speak to audio professionals from all walks of life. Join us Tuesdays at 9 a.m. and listen to the amazing array of sound humans talk about how they got into the biz. And a few cool things, like roadie nicknames and fizzy water preferences. You can find the Sound Girls Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as our website, soundgirls.org. Hey, everybody. This is Tim from Tone Menders. In our latest episode, we talk with four-time Oscar winner Richard King. He tells us about the ultra-complicated sound for Christopher Nolan's latest film, Tenant. We talk about creating interesting sound design for scenes happening in reverse, how to build cinematic body punches, and his thoughts on the controversy over the film's dialogue mix. Listen wherever you find podcasts or at ToneBendersPodcast.com. Hi everyone, this is Sam Hughes, host of the Sound Architect podcast, where I interview audio professionals around the world about their projects, their careers, and their advice. I've spoken to some of the most amazing sound designers on the top games, TV shows, and movies of our time. Our guests also include some of the biggest composers of our generation and some of the most amazing voice actors I've ever spoken to. Catch the Sound Architect podcast wherever you listen to your podcast or at our website, www.thesoundarchitect.co.uk. See you there. In our modern lives, we spend so much time thinking about what things look like that we tend to forget about our incredible sense of hearing. That's where we come in. I'm Dallas Taylor, and I'm the host of 20,000 Hertz, a podcast that reveals the stories behind the world's most recognizable and interesting sounds. In each episode, we chase down the hidden backstory behind a famous sound or sonic phenomenon. We followed sound designer Ben Burt on his hunt for the sound effects of Star Wars. He was hiking and his backpack caught on a, a guy wire that was leading up to a radio tower, and he heard what sounded like a blaster sound. We found out that dinosaurs probably didn't sound anything like Jurassic Park. If we were around when T-Rex was around, we might feel these sounds of the largest dinosaurs more than we would hear them through our ears. We've tracked down the origins of a drum sample that's been used in hundreds of hip-hop and electronic songs. During that time, everybody had drum breaks. And we had been doing songs where Greg would play these drum beats. We've explored the challenges of interplanetary communication. It's pretty amazing to think that I could be on Mars and say, Houston, I have a problem. And it'll be 40 minutes before they get back and say, what's up? And we've revealed how the Netflix audio logo almost included the sound of a goat. For a while, we were stuck on that goat sound. I thought that would be a good time. <laughs> this year on 20,000 Hertz, we'll uncover the origins of even more iconic sounds. Our dog. We'll also hear from a few surprise guests. In this run of Daffy, he's not the greedy money. Ooh, that's mine. Give that to me. We're bringing him back to the, uh, I'm Daffy. You know, Uh, we are all time travelers going one way. Subscribe to 20,000 Hertz wherever you get your podcasts. 
That's 20,000 hertz spelled out without any numbers. Once you see our swirly purple icon, you'll know you're in the right place. And if you're already a fan of the show, tap the share button in your podcast player and post this trailer on Facebook or Twitter, or text it to someone directly who you think would love this show. 